amen if you will make your way to the gospel of Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. We're going to work our way through this passage of scripture today and I want to speak to you on this subject. We live according to who we are. You know there's a lot of pressure in life on all of us to find our identity through things like vocation or relationships or successes, or maybe failures, uh, appearance, any number of things that are external can tend to define our identity and thereby also contribute to how we see our worth. The problem is if we find our identity in any of those things and they change, then the very foundation of how we see ourselves is shaken and it's altered and we're in trouble. We have to find our identity in who we are in God, and then because of who we are in God, we live according to who we are. I want to work from a basic premise today. If you've ever had any logic or read anything about logic, this is an if-then kind of statement. The if is that if your identity is found in who you are in God, then your relationship with him will define how you see yourself and how you serve the world. The then part of it is who you are in God forms how you live. So let's put those together. Your identity is found in who you are in God. Who you are in God forms how you live. If one is true, then the other will be true as well. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, in this passage before us today, we encounter an expert in the religious law who approached Jesus. He would have been an expert in the interpretation of the Torah, the writings of Moses, the heart of the Hebrew Bible. And he asked Jesus a question. And we learn in the passage that it was not a genuine question. Rather, it was intended to test Jesus. He wanted to entrap Jesus and to expose the teaching of Jesus as falling short of the Jewish standard of the day, to which Jesus replies with a question of his own. And then the dialogue that goes back and forth between Jesus and this lawyer, Jesus shares one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, that of the Good Samaritan. It's unique to Luke's gospel, and the expert in the law eventually ends up answering his own question. So here's what we're going to do in these few moments that we have together. We're going to consider this passage of Scripture in two major sections, and then I'm going to come back with some points of life application first part is this. When you know God, you will love God. When you know God, you will love God. Pick up reading in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Ironically, the expert in the law would have been certain that he had the truth. And the fact that he stands up to ask his question of Jesus indicates that they were all likely sitting, even as Jesus was teaching. And as he stands up, he stands up with an agenda. He's got a motive. He has an underlying purpose that he's standing up to ask this question for. It's not from the right motivation. He's wanting to catch Jesus in something. So he asks the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Bible notes a little bit further down that the man was wanting to justify himself. That indicates that he likely already thought he had eternal life because after all, he was of the chosen people. He was dedicated to studying the law. He would have seen himself as being diligent in keeping it. He would have observed the feasts and the festivals and observed the traditions of religion. He would have been faithful to the Sabbath and so on. So here was a man who thought he had his religious basis covered. He thought he had nothing to worry about. Jesus replies with the questions, what is written in the law and what is your reading of it? Note here, Jesus did not ask what tradition said about it. He did not ask about the man's opinion. Instead, he turned the focus back on what God had said in his law because God's word is the authority. And today, as we look for authority and we look for a foundation to build our lives on and we look for something that we can anchor our worldview in, we always turn back to God and his word as our authority. The lawyer then answers Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What did the lawyer do? He quoted the two great commandments, that we love God with our entire being and that we love our neighbor as ourselves, which serves as a summary of the law and really as the pinnacle of the law because life with God is distilled with those basic ideas that it is about loving God and because we love God, then we also love our neighbor. Specifically, what he quotes from is the Shema, meaning to hear, the Hebrew word which begins the most important prayer in Judaism. The centerpiece of the morning and evening Jewish prayer services, certainly in those days, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which begins with the command to hear. And the whole Shema prayer, which includes verses 4 through 9, were a part of the daily tradition. Now, typically, the first part of it would have been uh, what was cited, uh, with the other part following as teaching, but with the first part also including a response, not from the scripture, but from the response of people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So Jesus says to the lawyer, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. 
Now, is it not interesting that Jesus did not reply with, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? That's true, but that's not what he said. Did Jesus indicate to the man that he could inherit eternal life? And the resounding answer is no. What Jesus did instead was he used the law as God intended it. God intended that the law would be a tutor, a teacher, to show people how far they are away from God and how to know God. Even before the law was given, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been by faith. Salvation has never been of works. Salvation has never been of the law. It has always been based in trusting in what God has said and casting ourselves on him and his grace and mercy. But here Jesus uses the law as the teacher. The Mosaic law was given specifically to the nation of Israel, the law being that which revealed the holy character of God. The law set apart Israel as a distinct people. It did not provide salvation for Israel, but it pointed people to their need for God. And as Paul makes clear in his letter to the churches of Galatia, the law reveals our sinfulness. Because when we see that none of us are able to perfectly keep it, and yet it reveals the holy character of God, his absolute perfection, his absolute righteousness, then it drives us to our understanding that we cannot do it on our own. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Nobody can perfectly keep the law, and everyone falls short of the glory of God. And when we come to that realization, we come to a crossroads. We come to a crisis of faith. Because either we will think that we can do enough good to somehow measure up to the scales of God and somehow be admitted into his presence, or we will recognize the absolute futility of it all, that no measure of good works can equate to the righteousness of God, and we will come to him and depend on him in repentance and faith. And I don't miss this point. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. And his death on the cross was payment for your penalty for breaking it. That's why he came. Paul continues in Galatians 3 and verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, listen to verse 24, Galatians chapter 3. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now listen to verse 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Are you trusting in your good works for your salvation? The holy standard of God's law requires absolute perfection. 
do you honestly think that you can measure up to every point of the law, to every point of God's holiness? It is impossible. That's why the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. James 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So what the Bible teaches is that even one transgression makes us having transgressed the entirety of the law because all have sinned. When you know God, you will love God. You will not seek to justify yourself, but you will instead depend on the redemptive grace of God and it will be evidenced by your life. And that brings me to the second part of this message. When you know God, you will love your neighbor. We begin reading again in verse 30. Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to show the lawyer that he fell short. And he says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35, on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Jesus used this parable to show the lawyer how far he fell short and the kind of works that God will produce in the life of a person who is not depending on their own righteousness but is instead depending on the righteousness of God. Jesus demonstrates in this exchange that it is far easier to subscribe to an idea about what is right than to actually live what is right. It is far easier to agree that something is right than to actually do what is right. Humorous illustration, a police officer pulled a driver aside and asking for his license and his registration and the driver said what's wrong officer I didn't go through any red lights and I certainly wasn't speeding officer said no you weren't but I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady in the left lane and I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver in the Hummer who cut you off and how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge the driver said, is that a crime, officer? The officer replied, no, but when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker, I was certain that the car was stolen. It is far easier to say that you believe the right thing than it is to actually do it. Did you know that people often find it difficult to live up to their own ideas and their own ideals. So what Jesus does is he gives us a practical example of what it means to love your neighbor 
as yourself. He shows us, he demonstrates, as he did to the lawyer, what the golden rule is all about, because that's what the Samaritan implemented. He was implementing the golden rule, treating this man as he would want to be treated. And Jesus specifically responded to the question that was asked, who is my neighbor, by showing him that our neighbor is anyone to whom we can demonstrate the love of God. That's who our neighbor is. 1 John 3 and verse 17 says, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, then how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, don't miss this point. You cannot be saved by good works, but your salvation will be evidenced by your good works. You cannot be declared righteous because of what you've done, but if you've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, then what you do will be consistent with who you are. And when you love God, you will love your neighbor. So here's the story. A man was going down to Jericho from Jerusalem. Robbers attacked him, took his possessions and his clothes, beat him and left him for dead. There were three people who passed by. The first was a priest. Jericho apparently was one of the main country spots where priests would live. So he was likely returning from uh, a holy service in the temple. He sees the injured man. He passes by on the other side. If the man was actually dead and the priest touched him, then the priest would be ceremonially defiled. So to avoid it, what did he do? He transgressed the law by not doing what God would have had him to do. He was a religious man, but evidently not a righteous man. It is possible to be religious without being righteous. It's possible to sit in a church week in and week out and not know the Lord. It's possible to be depending on other things besides Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. It's possible even to be a member of a Baptist church and spend eternity in hell because you were depending on something other than Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Second man was also a religious man. He was a Levite. What'd he do? Same thing. Levites were not as high-ranking as the priests, but they were certainly people of privilege. They oversaw temple services. He passed by. And then there's a Samaritan. Samaritan uh, from a race that was not well-liked by the Jews. He saw the hurt man, and he had compassion on him by rendering first aid. People of Samaria lived in the area between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south, and they had intermarried with non-Jews. They did not observe the Mosaic law strictly. They had their own ideas. But here's this Samaritan. He pours oil and wine on the wounds of the man. He binds them up. He puts the man on his beast of burden. He takes him to an inn where he cares for him. The next morning, he gives the innkeeper some money, maybe as much as several weeks' worth of money. We're not sure exactly what the value of it would have been. And he tells him, listen, if I come back through here and there's more that you've expended, then I'll take care of that as well. And the Samaritan demonstrated love for his neighbor and in turn shows us the example to live by. Now, we're not done with this because now we're going to consider some life application of this principle drawn from the parable. And what we need to do, first of all, is we need to learn to see needs. You say, wait a minute now. Is this a, uh, both a, a, an understanding and an action 
So in other words, can I believe these things and not be fully practicing them and still know the Lord? Yes, you can, because maybe you've gotten selfish along the way or maybe because of your own spiritual lack of maturity or because of your own lack of understanding of what it means to love your neighbor. You've not been living as you should, and it could be a matter of maturity for you. But I think these are what will be put into action when loving your neighbor because you love God is a reality for your life. Learn to see needs. The priest and the Levite were both religious people. Watch this now. They saw the need, but they didn't really see the need. It is possible to be aware of something that is a need around you, but not truly see it enough to care anything about it. The man was badly wounded, and the Samaritan saw the situation, and he was willing to respond. He didn't just see it with his eyes, but he saw the need. He's willing to engage in it. Sometimes we get caught up in the spiritual, and we forget the physical, when in reality it all goes together. The problem comes is if we minister only to the physical and we don't have an understanding of the spiritual. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book, A Chance to Die, and in that book she told the story about Amy Carmichael, uh, who I've referenced before, who was faithful for many decades on mission in India. And she took in many homeless people and unwanted children as part of her mission. And there was one particular donor along the way uh, who said to Amy Carmichael, I want to give this money, but I only want it to be used for evangelistic purposes. That's it. I don't want to go into any buildings. don't want to go into any human need type stuff. I just want it to be used for evangelistic purposes. Amy sighed, according to Elizabeth Elliot's illustration, and said, Well, one can't save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. There are times when I heartily wish I could. And as for building, souls in India at least are more or less securely fastened into bodies, and bodies cannot be left to lie about in the open. And as you can't get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. Here's the point that Amy Carmichael was making. Sometimes we need to meet a physical need so that we can gain a hearing for a spiritual need. The problem is if we only meet a physical need with no concern for a spiritual need, then all we've done is a good deed. We have not done a deed of righteousness. God will use us in those moments when we learn to see the needs, when we learn to encounter hurting and broken people. And while it might not be circumstances as dramatic as the Good Samaritan, do you see the needs? that are around you. Then you need to learn to feel compassion. Learn to feel compassion. Now the Samaritan saw the situation. And the fact that he had compassion demonstrated that he saw the need. His response to it in his heart was evidence of the fact that he saw what was going on. 
And our Lord came with a revolutionary message of the kingdom of God, and he had compassion on people. He showed compassion for men and women and children and, and for the broken and for the needy. Our Lord loved the people on the edges of society. He was concerned with things like hunger and disease and injustice. But our Lord always had a focus on the spiritual condition and on their eternal destiny. He did not separate the two. He did not make an artificial division between the two, but he always recognized the ultimate. And it's the same calling for us, that the gospel is at the heart of everything that we do, but God uses many means for us to be able to speak not only to an immediate crisis or need that a person might have, but also to speak to their soul. And often it's in those moments that there's a holy interaction even between God's people and people who are in need and God meeting them at their point of need. And I think that's what Jesus did. He had compassion, met people where they were, and he set them free as they believed in him. I'm going to make a statement that might be one of the most important statements of this sermon, so don't miss it. I'm going to say it twice. Compassion should be expressed based on needs, not based on a value judgment of a person's worth. Let me say that again. Compassion should be expressed based on needs, not on a value judgment of a person's worth. Here's what can happen for us as Christians. We get saved by the grace of God, we get blessed abundantly, and then we forget how we got there. We forget how gracious God has been to us. We forget how much mercy has overflowed to us. We forget the price that was paid at the cross so that we could be reconciled to a holy and a loving God. We forget what it really means to be able to call God our Father and for God to be able to call us His children. And we look at people and circumstances that they're in and we think they did something dumb to get themselves there. They don't deserve that. Why don't they just fix their problem? And we begin to make these value judgments rather than simply responding in the love of God. So let me ask you this question. Did you deserve the compassion of God? Did you deserve God to pour out his compassion on you? The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And friends, I want to be a person who is shown mercy by a great God because I am also showing mercy. I want the mercy of God in my life and the compassion of God in my life to be evidence of who I am. And I want to exercise that, but then I want to continue to receive that mercy. And the only way we can do it is if we don't get hard-hearted and cynical and get an attitude of somehow we deserved it. And then that brings me to the third point of application. Learn to take action. The Samaritan spent time, money, and a good bit of effort to help the needy man. He probably even tore his own clothes to bandage the wounds. He walks to the end while the man rides on his beast of burden. Let's, let's just state it as it is. The whole thing was a big old inconvenience. But he did it without complaint. 
You know why a lot of times we don't get involved with the needs that our neighbor might have? It might not be this dramatic. Listen, it might be a spiritual need or it might be some kind of burden that your literal neighbor is dealing with. Or it might be your neighbor at work who is broken because of something that's going on in their family. It might not be this dramatic of a situation. But you know why we don't get involved? Because people's lives are messy and we don't think we have the time. That's why. I mean, who's got time to deal with everybody else's problem? You're dealing with enough problems of your own. But yet this is where faith comes in. Because you understand that God has the capacity to help you, and God also has the capacity to help other people. So we don't see ourselves as the Savior. We point other people to the Savior. And the Samaritan man could have thought, let the Jews take care of him. I don't have time for this. But instead, he saw the man as a fellow human being. He had compassion, and he took action. Let me just tell you, loving other people... It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your energy. You're going to get burned and disappointed along the way. Sometimes you're going to step in and you're going to help somebody who is absolutely thankless for what you've done for them. Listen, if you are doing it so that somebody else will thank you for what you're doing, you are doing it for the wrong reason. And furthermore, if you're doing it so other people will recognize you for doing it, that's the wrong reason as well. I'll get to that in a moment. Jesus comes back to the lawyer with a question. Verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The hated Samaritan, not the priest or the Levite, and by implication, not the question asking lawyer, the Samaritan was the keeper of the law. The Samaritan loved others as he loved himself. The Samaritan showed that he loved God with all his heart. And unless you seek to love God with your heart, soul, body, and mind, you'll never fully love your neighbor as yourself. And I think too often in the Christian faith, we tend to wear our our faith on our sleeves. and, And we need to be bold about how we serve. But we also need to be careful that we're not seeking the attention of people. Or that we're not wanting people to look at us and think, oh, what a good person he is, or what a good person she is. Look, look at what they've done. And sometimes we do that with that false humility where we put it out there for people to see and we have that humble brag moment when in fact we're told in the scripture to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Because if you're doing it for the accolades of people, Jesus said, you already got your reward. There's nothing else coming. You already received it. But if you do these things secretly, with humility, then the Lord will reward you openly. Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? 2020, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anybody who is created in the image of God 
who is in need, physically or spiritually, and I'm in a position to be a blessing to them. Anyone who is created in the image of God who is in need, physically or spiritually, and I'm in a position to be a blessing to them. Does your life reflect that you've received the love of God by how you're extending love to your neighbor? We live according to who we are. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Maybe today you've thought wrongly, maybe all your life, that there was something you could do in order to make yourself acceptable to God. And you've never truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, seeing Him as your only hope, turning from your sins in repentance and turning to the Savior in faith. He invites you today to come to Him. If you're listening to this message now live or maybe even later on, you're listening. You say, Pastor, I know that I've been depending on other things. I've not completely been dependent on Christ. My, my faith has been in myself and not in Him. You can trust Him. And He'll forgive you and He'll save your soul. Will you come to Jesus? Christian, maybe you've just been busy in life and... You've allowed everything else to distract you and you're not showing love to your neighbor in need because, you, number one, you don't know your neighbor or maybe you don't know what the needs are. Would you pray right now for God to soften your heart, to help you to be able to see the needs around you, to feel mercy and compassion to the very depths of your being, and then in faithfulness to be able to step out and do something about it. The mercy of God's people should be a reflection of the mercy of God. Father, thank you that we can know you not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves. I pray if there's anybody that might be like this expert in the law who was seeking to justify himself, that today they'd realize there's only one way to be justified, to be declared righteous, and that's in Jesus Christ. May we, as the people of God, be willing to humbly serve without recognition, without wrong motivation, but just with a purity of a desire to love our neighbor as we've loved ourselves because of the love that you have richly poured out on us. So thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in our lives. And we give the time of response over to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.